by the very act of diversifying, you're eliminating the potential of, of being overexposed to the worst performing asset class, but you're also limiting your ability to be exposed to the, the best performing asset class. The, the challenge though is we can't know without the benefit of hindsight what the best performing asset class is going to be over the next one year, three years, five years, 10 years. I think as, as human beings, we have very short memories and we had an incredible decade for US large cap stocks. And in hindsight, yes, of course, it would have made more sense to own more of them. Uh, any, you know, it would 100% in hindsight would have been probably the right move. But we, 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 we have no way of knowing that without, you know, the benefit of hindsight. And so I think the, I think you just need to remind people that that's not always been the case. We only have to look a decade prior to the 2000s, where you had a negative 10-year period for the S&P 500. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today I'm joined by Phil Huber. Uh, Phil is Chief Investment Officer of Savant Wealth Management, a $14 billion fee-only registered investment advisor based in Illinois. Phil is also a prolific writer and blogger and author of the recently released book, The Allocator's Edge. The Allocator's Edge is a really comprehensive deep dive into the world of alternative investments, and I think it's a really valuable tool for advisors and allocators. So what better person to kick off our allocator series than having the author of The Allocator's Edge, Phil Huber. Phil, welcome to the podcast. How is all on your side today? Very good, Alan. Thank you for having me. Great. It's it's great to have you on on such an interesting period in markets. It's been a Certainly an eventful start to the year. Um, how has it been on your side in terms of uh, portfolio management and uh, client interaction? Uh, I mean, it's, we're, we're still pretty early in the year and it's coming off of a, of a pretty strong year. So I don't, I don't think anyone's getting too worked up quite yet about some of the January volatility that we've seen. But uh, yeah, there's, there's never a dull moment. I think, and I think the last few years have demonstrated that. Absolutely. And I think we'll, uh, we'll be coming back certainly to the... Uh, outlook for traditional assets and alternatives as we go through. But maybe to kick off, Phil, and to set the scene a little bit, um, obviously, you're Chief Investment Officer of Savant Wealth. But to give us a sense of your journey in the world of investing, how did you get started? What brought you into the business? And what brought you to your current position? Sure. Um, so I, I kind of grew, grew up in, in and around the RA industry. Um, my father was and is a financial advisor. He started his own practice back in the late 1980s and, and you know grew that to a good size and I, I joined the firm shortly after college uh, in 2008 um, and so kind of came up through the ranks there we were a much smaller organization but I spent I think about 12 to 13 years as part of uh, uh, what was called at the time Huber Financial Advisors 
and uh, in about, I think, 2015, took on the role of chief investment officer there. I, I realized fairly early on in my career that, you know, we were a very much a planning, like a financial planning focused organization, like many RAs are. But as we were growing, we saw a, a need for investment focused leadership um, in what we were doing. And that was the area that I had the most passion for and interest in and wanted to focus my time and time and energy on. So um, ultimately that came to fruition. And um, as we got to 2019 and, and started to think about our longer term um, succession planning and, and you know, grow, next leg of our growth uh, in our journey, we thought it made more sense to partner with a, a like-minded firm in Savant as opposed to trying to do it on our own. And so um, ultimately we, we came to a deal to merge with uh, Savant Net closed in February of 2020, um, so just just uh, just in the nick of time before things got really uh, really chaotic in the world uh, from COVID uh, coming on, and so um, I, I essentially took on the same role I was I was uh, responsible for at Huber Financial as, as chief investment officer for Savant. I would say you know very similar responsibilities, just a larger enterprise and a larger footprint um, and, and a deeper bench and team that I have uh, uh, supporting me. So that, that's been really a positive experience so far. And we're coming up on our, our two-year anniversary here in a few weeks. Uh, and it's been great. Uh, uh, Savant's a fantastic firm and uh, we have a lot of great capabilities, not just on the investment side, but also in financial planning and, and tax planning, estate planning, and all the other areas that touch people's financial lives. Good stuff. Um, and I touched on the, the book you've just uh, released not so long ago. Obviously, you have been quite active in terms of writing your own blog and uh, posting on social media. What was uh, what was it that really prompted you to take the step to go and, and write a full book on allocations and uh, allocating to alternatives in particular? Yeah, I would, I would say the activity of, of writing and blogging frequently online is ultimately what kind of led me to who, who became my publisher. So we, we started engaging in conversations several years ago and, and, and really it was, it was they were kind of gauging my interest in writing a book. And, you know, aside from being very flattered that they were interested in working with me, it was, it was certainly a, a bucket list type item that I, I had always wanted to accomplish at some point. So it really became a function of um, the opportunity was there. What, what, what topic really excites me to write about and, and devote a good chunk of the next year or two uh, to, to really work on and dive deep into. And, you know, it, it became apparent pretty quickly that that topic would be alternative investments just because, you know, we, we have, I would say, substantial allocations to alternatives, but it's not like all we do is is alternative investing in our clients. Our, our portfolios have pretty strong, you know, uh, representation from traditional asset classes as well. But what, what I kind of realized in practice and a lot of the conversations I was having with the advisors on our, our team and the clients that they serve is despite, you know, call it the average alternatives allocation being, you know, 15 to 20% of the portfolio, it was, it was really where most of the investment related conversations were happening between advisors and clients and, and probably not by surprise. Um, and I attribute, it, attribute that to a couple of reasons. One is... Um, you know, we, we were kind of in the midst of a pretty lengthy bull market in stocks. And so anything that's sort of underperforming stocks or acting as, as a bit of a performance drag at the time, uh, you know, gets a closer a bit of scrutiny, uh, you know, associated with it. And I think, too, just the, the it's it's a very, you know, the word alternatives doesn't really tell you much about what something is, but more about what something isn't. And it encompasses a wide array of different asset classes and strategies that sort of fall outside the, you know, traditional umbrella. But that could be anything from, you know, real estate to private equity to you know managed futures to insurance linked securities and 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 many many more you know different subsets within that broad uh, classification. So um, because there's such a degree of uh, you know uh, heterogeneous assets, um, you know it can become a little bit daunting. I think for not for not just for clients but for advisors as well to try to decipher and, and set expectations appropriately for the things that go into that bucket. Um, but it's also things that people are, are not necessarily accustomed to owning. So it's it's new things in the portfolio. And so they just want to better understand like, hey, what is this fund or what is this asset class? Why do I own it? What's the role in the portfolio? Where is it being sourced from? And so I think I saw a large sort of education gap that still needs to be filled uh, both at the professional advisor level and at the end client level to get everybody just sort of more conversant and more comfortable with what we think is going to be a more important part of the portfolio as we look ahead to the next decade. Great. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, from my own experience in, in the managed future space, um, 
big part of our role was always education as much as, um, you know, portfolio management. And uh, it's certainly um, something that I think will will resonate with a lot of people and, and be a really valuable resource uh, for a lot of advisors and allocators going forward. Um, you touched on it, you know, your role in Savant. It's not just alternatives. Obviously, you're overseeing multi-asset portfolios. If you could just set the scene a little bit there in terms of the typical clients, the types of portfolios that that you're you're constructing and, and advising on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so ultimately, we're in the business of creating multi-asset diversified portfolios that that are designed to be in service of the client's ultimate financial goals and objectives. And it's our job to, you know, essentially employ what we, you know, feel is an evidence-based approach that, you know, we're designing portfolios to tilt the odds in favor uh, for our clients of long-term success and positive investment outcomes as best as we possibly can. And I think what's interesting in in the way that we, you know, we work with thousands of different clients of all shapes and sizes. And what's interesting about working with individuals, you know, as opposed to institutions is it's not just one large pool of capital. It's you know, many different pools of capital and each of those pools of capital can have, you know, a handful of different account types. You know, when you're looking at a typical household, you often see, you know, a trust account or multiple trust accounts and, you know, traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs and all sorts of different, you know, tax ramifications and things like that. So we, you know, we have portfolios that that, that are designed to meet, you know, all different sorts of objectives, uh, ranging from very conservative capital preservation focused you know, goals uh, to to long-term capital appreciation focused uh, portfolios. And then even within those different sort of risk uh, spectrums, we have a few different flavors based on the client's ultimate sort of preferences around things like, you know, liquidity and um, certain types of fund structures that are allowed or not allowed um, and, and how tax efficient we need to be focused on depending on the mix of, you know, dollars they have spread across taxable versus tax deferred accounts. And so, um, you know, by and large, we focus more so on, on what I would say are, are more liquid uh, types of vehicles, uh, just given the, the kind of typical client we work with. There's not, you know, actually... I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but typically speaking, there's not a huge appetite for, you know, long-term illiquid investments. It's more like, you know, retirement portfolios where we want to have the ability to meet any sort of income needs that the client has or liquidity, you know, potential liquidity needs that are there. Uh, and we also want to be, have retain the ability to engage in ongoing rebalancing of the portfolio, tax loss harvesting and other things that sort of require a little bit more of a liquid uh, approach. So we have a handful of of strategies that are in some of our, our model portfolios that are a little bit less liquid, but by and large, it's mostly daily liquid things like ETFs or, or mutual funds. Okay, great. Um, I guess that's a good segue into the kind of the the first topic that you touch on in, in, in the book, and that's that's the, the kind of the 60-40 portfolio. And I think your first chapter is hindsight is 60-40. And I suppose the 60-40 portfolio is, is kind of the benchmark for, for a lot of those Typical liquid multi-asset uh, portfolios, and you know, you touch on 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 what the challenge is with the sixty forty portfolio, namely that obviously we've got expensive valuations for both stocks and bonds at the moment. So, so on a forward-looking basis, things look uh, more challenging. Why do you think the sixty forty portfolio became such a, a benchmark in the industry in in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly what made it sort of the the the, the de facto blended portfolio but um I, I think just the the evolution of how you know financial products have come to market and allocators have focused you know every most people like you have you have very aggressive clients you have very conservative clients but generally i mean i think most people kind of on average tend to fall somewhere in the middle where they want some participation and upside and and they they sort of need it to meet their long-term return objectives. So that's where the stock allocation comes into play. But then there's also a need for defense to, to sort of, you know, mitigate risk and manage volatility, the overall portfolio so that clients can stick with it. And then particularly when you get, you know, to a later part of the, the investor life cycle and, um, you know, you're f- more focused on sequence of return risk and there's a need for liquidity and income, you know, bonds have historically played, played that role. And so I think it's a, it's a very intuitive portfolio. Um, you know, a little bit of an edge to the stock side and, and giving it 60 as opposed to like 50, 50. Um, and, and that you want to have that long-term upside appreciation that stocks have, have typically offered. Um, but I think it's just, a, it's a mix that has an intuitive nature to it. I think people kind of get what stocks and box, stocks and bonds are, even your most 
novice investors understand sort of the role of those two two asset classes. And so there's an intuitiveness, there's a a historical, you know, return and risk benefit in the sense if you just look back the last 40 years, it's it's been a really good portfolio to own. It's delivered, you know, meaning, meaningful yeah. returns and and um, you know, decent, you know, risk adjusted returns. And so it's kind of delivered on its premise. Um, and it's also gotten very, very easy to implement. You know, as time has gone on and we've seen the emergence of passive investing and the explosion of ETFs, like this is a very cheap and easy portfolio to build today. You know, with a few clicks of a of a mouse, you can, you know, buy one or two funds and, and have global exposure to, you know, public stock and bond markets. And so I think there's appeal there too, and from a cost and um, ease of use standpoint. So very, very easy to understand why so many investors and their advisors have sort of anchored to this type of uh, asset allocation because it it, it served them well. So it's it's kind of like, you know, why, why would I fix something that doesn't seem to be broken? But if we look ahead, not not to say that, you know, I think I think there's too much written about sort of the quote unquote like death of 6040. I think that's a bit mm-hmm. too extreme in the sense that it sort of implies that there's a near term, you know, catastrophic event on the horizon. To me, the the, the future for 6040 is more just this kind of disappointment that will likely happen relative to people's expectations and more of sort of a slow, you know, a slow pain as opposed to a, a fast pain. Um, in the sense that you're not going to notice it necessarily immediately. You know, if we look at the stock side, we, you mentioned elevated valuations, particularly in the U.S., but that, that's been the case for many years now. And so, as we know, valuation is a very blunt timing tool and stocks can get more expensive and, and it doesn't really tell you much about the next year or two years. But generally speaking, you know, high valuations you know, are, are, are tend to forbear lower expected returns than average and, and vice versa. And so, you know, we, we kind of recognize that over the next 10 years, it seems unlikely we're going to repeat the experience of, you know, U.S. large cap stocks of the prior 10 years. Um, but but the path to get there, you know, is very will be very volatile and sort of <laughs> uncertain and um, anything can really happen in the short term. Now, I think the picture in, in bonds is a little bit more crystal clear in the sense that there's, there's a high degree of predictability uh, with your starting yield and what your kind of forward 10-year you know, total return is going to look like it's going to be generally in that same ballpark, plus or minus, you know, 50 basis points, something like that. So if you got a starting yield of two, it's it's very likely your your total return over the next 10 years is going to be somewhere, you know, close to 2%. And so that's sort of the, the math of bonds is a little bit, you know, more, more, you know, clean cut than it is for stocks. And so that that's probably the part that worries us the most is investors being too reliant on the role of bonds uh, because the, 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 just the, the interest rate outlook and the, and the, fixed income environment is much different today than it was 30 years ago. And we don't have the, you know, benefit of a secular decline in rates over the next 30 years to act as a tailwind for that part of the portfolio. So it's not to say that, you know, get rid of the 40 altogether. It's just to say, you know, bonds can still serve a role. They're still going to likely, you know, be sort of a, you know, a defensive part of the portfolio in in times of recession or deflationary environments um, for clients that really place a premium on having liquidity in the portfolio and a source of stability, you know, high quality fixed incomes can still have a place, but we just think it needs to be sort of de-emphasized a little bit. And we need to open up the door to other types of diversifiers, knowing that, you know, the alternative to 6040 having a low expected return outlook is not necessarily Okay, we'll just ramp up your stock risk and go from 60-40 to 80-20 or 100-0. That's not the right answer for most people either, because that entails a higher degree of volatility um, that, that that many people might not be able to stomach. And so I think, you know, when you pair that outlook with the fact that more and more alternatives have come to market and, and are now more accessible to your average investor and your your financial advisory type type uh, allocator. Um, I think it just gives us a broader toolkit and, and and a higher degree of raw materials that we have to build portfolios with. And so it's not as you know we're not as limited as we might have been 20 years ago. There's other you know asset classes and strategies we can access that we think improve diversification and improve the risk adjusted return outlook for for multi asset portfolios. And obviously, as I said, we were, we're we're speaking on the 26th of January today, so it's already been a pretty tough month for for both stocks and equities. So, you know, I think back of the envelope calculation, um, 
the 60-40 portfolios will be down 5 or 6% uh, m- month to date. And, you know, what we're seeing in the markets this month is, uh, is a concern about, well, inflation has been a concern for a few months now, but that concern translating into concerns about a more aggressive uh, tightening cycle from, from the Fed. I mean, do you have a sense, is this the start of the move, the, the change, the regime shift that people have been worried about for a long time? Or is it too early to say? And and do you specifically try and build in some kind of specific protection in the portfolios for, for rising rates and inflation? Or is it just that you focus on being really diversified and and having a robust portfolio? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to really pinpoint the timing of these, you know, quote, re- regime shifts. They... Um, you can get some head fakes along the way. We've had a few in, in prior years, um, so you know I, I, I'm 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 not as good as reading the macro tea leaves as anybody else's over the short term. Um, but you know it, it does seem like there you know you you could make a case that again rates didn't have too much further to fall. So um, you, you know even if rates kind of stay really really low, that doesn't that still gives you a pretty poor outlook for bonds over the next ten years. Even if if rates kind of stagnate, which I think is probably actually a worse outcome for for savers and investors um you know what, what you hope for is a sort of steadily you know you know steady increase in rates as opposed to something more more violent that, that derails financial markets but you know inflation i think really surprised a lot of people last year i think um it was it's been stickier than people initially ex- expected and just when you see those kind of headline numbers you know that are that are the biggest we've seen in many decades i think um, certainly more than I've seen in my lifetime. And so I think it, it can be, it can, it can sound off some alarm bells, uh, to folks, but I, but I think also at the same time, probably unlikely we see a repeat of the 1970s in terms of the, the kind of, you know, decade long inflation, you know, really, really high inflation type environment. I think some of that will subside, but I think there's also a strong case that inflation will, you know, be higher in the future to a degree than it has been in the, in the prior 10 years. Um, and I think, you know, we've just had such an extended run for U.S. equities, um, for growth stocks in particular. And so I think, you know, just understanding the history of market cycles, I think it wouldn't surprise me if we started to see the the, the formation and the seeds, you know, if you will, for perhaps a rotation outside of U.S. stocks into international stocks, from you know, growth into value. And so, you know, the, the spreads on value stocks are still at pretty historic levels despite, you know, small cap value having a pretty great, you know, 12 to 18 month pre- period. So I think a lot, a lot of dynamics in place that, that might indicate that we're, we're at, you know, the, the, the earlier stage of some sort of change in overall market dynamics and where capital will flow and where ultimately, you know, future returns might, might, might be. Um, but, we're, you know, again, we're not in the business of making that type of prediction and going all in or all out on one one or more asset classes, we, we, we tend to not make, you know, those types of all in or all out decisions. It's more about, you know, having a long-term return forecast for each asset class we own and, and trying to tilt the portfolio a little bit in favor uh, uh, towards those areas that we're most optimistic about. But, you know, these, these tend to be more modest moves in nature. At the end of the day, we still want to retain the benefits of, of asset classes that we might deem to be expensive for purposes of, of diversification and um, just sort of a humility of, of, of we don't know what the future is going to hold. So we want to be prepared for a number of different possible outcomes. Absolutely. And I guess your, your, your philosophy of being very much open to looking at different alternative investments is is very much aligned with, with that kind of thinking of having uh, robust portfolios and, and portfolios that can be um, performing in, in different market environments. So I guess that brings us to the area of, you know, alternative investments. And it's, as you say, it's, 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 it's quite an open term. It, it, it's, it's, for, it's what something isn't as much as what something is. Um, when people think of alternatives, it can mean different things to different people. And depending on maybe your geographic location, you've got, you know, the whole gamut of different strategies and assets from private equity and gold, hedge funds, property, you know, which all of those might be debatable, whether they are now traditional or alternative, right over to the other end of the spectrum of, you know, collectibles, crypto, digital assets, NFTs, where you might have some debates as to whether they fall into the investment universe at all. So tell us, how do you think about uh, the different categories of alternatives and uh, What's your framework for for thinking about it? Well, I mean, you definitely hit the nail on the head in the sense that you can ask ten different people how to define alternatives, and you're probably going to get ten different answers. You know, even even when you re- if you reference the same asset class, what you know, private equity would be a good example. 
some folks might just view that as, hey, this is part of my long-term equity allocation. It just happens to be, you know, quite illiquid. And, and I take on that illiquidity for the purpose of hopefully excess returns above and beyond a public market benchmark. So that that's one area. Another would be, you know, real estate, you know, for publicly traded REITs. Is that does that count as a real estate allocation or is that part of your stock allocation because it's, you know, one of the 11 sectors, uh, you know, in the stock market and uh, has the volatility of stock. So how do you, how do you place that in a portfolio? So there's a, a handful of other examples, you know, Bitcoin is another good one where that might be more of a generational one where, you know, my, my, my <laughs> grandpa might think it's all alternative. My, my, you know, nephew might, might view it more as a traditional asset um, and because that's kind of what they, you know, grew up with. So it, ultimately it's going to, Depend on your audience, and, and it's going to evolve over time too. Things that um, were once probably considered a bit alternative, things like emerging markets or high yield bonds, have sort of crossed the chasm as they've matured as asset classes and are now pretty commonplace and and kind of fixtures of of more traditional asset allocations. And so, when we think about like sort of a core ensemble of alternatives to include in a client portfolio, we're, we're sort of aiming for that middle ground of risk and return between stocks and bonds typically and focus more on things that are, are liquid or, or not liquid or, or not fully li- illiquid, like things that kind of maybe fall in the middle from a liquidity standpoint. So that kind of leads us to a handful of categories. You know, one would be just sort of broadly speaking, you know, liquid alternative risk premia. So, you know, within that umbrella, you have things like, uh, you know, trend following or managed futures, or maybe sort of event driven merger arbitrage type strategies you know, things that have commonly been employed in the hedge fund world for decades, but are now more available in liquid formats. Um, so that's that's one category. Another would be uh, catastrophe reinsurance. Um, things like cat bonds um, are, are an interesting asset class and in that they're one of the really kind of truly uncorrelated things out there that are driven less by financial market variables and, and more so, you know, underlying catastrophic risk. And so that's an interesting asset class from a really pure diversification standpoint. Um, and then there's, you know, you get into areas of real assets. So things, out, you know, you've got real estate is the obvious one, but also infrastructure and timberland and farmland and other kind of cash flowing tangible asset classes that are sort of essential, you know, to the functioning of society and the economy uh, and that have some degree of, you know, direct or indirect inflation sensitivity um, that can be complementary to traditional asset classes. And then a growing world of of kind of private debt and private credit type of asset classes that probably offer, in our opinion, you know, you, you obviously you're taking on a little bit of illiquidity risk relative to things like high yield bonds, but we think that's a better risk reward trade off today versus the kind of where yields are at in, in public uh, non investment grade fixed income. It just you know yields have compressed a, a high degree there, and the the correlations spike pretty high in, in in stressed markets and equities, and so they don't really provide as much diversification as, as perhaps something like middle market direct lending might. So, um, you know, that those are those are probably the main buckets of where we tend to focus our time and energy and in our, our typical alternatives mix that we have for clients. You know, outside of that, you reference things like private equity. I think private equity could have a role for some folks, but I think for the for the average client we work with, it's probably not not a not a must-have asset class. And then you've got the more novel end of the spectrum, things like you mentioned, like crypto or um, collectibles, NFTs. And I think there's a lot of interesting applications potentially for these asset classes. I think the challenge is the the sense that they are so new. Um, maybe not collectibles. Collectibles have been around for a while. I think what's 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 more new with collectibles is the you know the the fractional nature in which they're being um, made available today, as opposed to having to go like if you're talking about like a baseball card that might be worth a million bucks, you might not need a million bucks. To go buy the physical card itself and put it into storage, you can participate in that asset via fractionalization. So there's a handful of, of kind of tech-focused alternative platforms out there that are trying to, you know, take some of these larger value collectible asset categories and kind of break them down into more reasonable bite sizes for for individual investors. So that's a, an interesting area. The challenge with that or with crypto is again, there's no cash flow component. There's limited performance history, so there's not a lot for allocators to go on in terms of really having a, a framework for expected risk and return. I mean, I've, I've seen a few proposed methodologies for valuing Bitcoin and Ethereum and other digital assets, but I think they're all still pretty, you know, novel and, and maybe not proven nearly as much as, you know, 
the the centuries worth of data we have for for you know for 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 global stocks and so it's just I, I think those will continue to evolve and I think they're they're it's not to write them off I think there could be a role for crypto for a number of investors that might have the stomach for you know the the, the magnitudes higher volatility that that comes with it um, than than stocks if you kind of size it appropriately and rebalance it it can you know at least in its history so far is is acted somewhat diversifying that being said we, we're going off a 13 year you know, history for for the asset class. So we're looking at a teenager, <laughs> effectively. And so, um, you know, you, like like any teen teenager, you can expect erratic behavior from time to time. And so it's you know, again, I think we'd be silly to just extrapolate the last ten to twelve years of Bitcoin's results to the next ten to twelve years. But but that at the same time, that doesn't mean we need to dismiss it as a potential monetary store of value type of asset that could have a role that that you know displaces gold to a degree. So. Um, so I think, I think we want to like the, the things that are a bit more novel and, and, you know, you want to, you want to pay attention to them, but maybe not, um, lean too heavily into them. There could be room for them in more of a speculative part of a portfolio, but in terms of kind sure. of a core alternatives allocation, kind of look to the things that have, you know, cash flow associated with them that have a intuitive kind of risk-based or behavioral based reason for why that return premium should exist. And something that's had a little bit more staying power, that's a bit more proven. Um, yeah. tend to be the things that we want to include in that uh, uh, allocation. You touched on some, you know, interesting alternatives that uh, I'm sure people would be would be familiar with, and uh, you know that that I know you're an advocate for managed futures and trend following. Obviously, my my own background is one, and you touched on insurance linked securities uh, and and cat bonds, and then and then you know other liquid alternatives like um, event driven or merger arb, etc. So. They're all very different in terms of what they what they do as as investment strategies, and they have different characteristics. How do you think about? Is it a you know including them in a portfolio? Is it, is it about allocating to all of them, or does it depend on it client by client, or are there particular circumstances you would prefer one over another, or are, is it just that these are risk premium that you think are going to be there over time? So you want to have them all in a portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I would say generally we, we want to have them all. You know, interestingly enough, the the ones that have struggled the most recently tend to be the ones that that, that clients don't want to own anymore, or they want to own less of. Whereas we probably would take the other end of that and say these are these are the ones that are probably the best to lean into a little bit now, and that are going to probably be the most diversifying when you want diversification the most. Um, and so, you know, I think like you know, you, you, it's no surprise to you. I think managed futures has been a tough one to stick with. The past decade because it's been a you know not a terrible decade but not a great one especially against you know a backdrop of of you know pretty good returns uh for for 60 40 type portfolios but at the same time it's not just the the sort of what of diversification we want to focus on it's the kind of the why the how and the when as well and one thing that we really like about managed futures is 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 the when in the sense that it has historically really shown up when you need it the most when Everything else and all the risk assets in the portfolio have, you know, corrected in concert with one another. And when you get these really, we haven't had one in a while, but these really sort of prolonged, nasty kind of bear markets that that tends to be when you see the best kind of performance from the asset class. So I think, you know, I think just educating clients and advisors on on um, being patient, giving these these strategies long enough, you know, enough rope to, you know, kind of do their thing with, and don't don't put too much emphasis on one or two years of Essentially subpar returns because that might not be indicative of what you know what what to expect longer term. And so I think you know you probably want to own all of them, but probably maybe overemphasize the things that have a little bit more structural diversification or more dependency um, during during kind of that that risk off type environment. And so that would probably lean you more into things like trend following or lean you more into things like insurance linked securities that are gonna you know again what's what's interesting there is. You know, the, you know the sensitivity to like rates going up or or inflation being high. Like it's pretty immune to those macro variables because they don't really have an impact. Like inflation could be up, down, or sideways, but that's not going to tell you anything about the return experience of of, of uh, reinsurance or cap bonds. And so I think that's a really really compelling one. And so I think the there's a, a case to be made for all of them. Um, we, we we like an ensemble approach purely for the fact that there is no one perfect silver bullet alternative investment. If there was, we'd probably, we'd put all our capital into it. And so, you know, everything's got its flaws. 
Um, everything's got its environments where it's going to probably struggle. I think it's, you know, where, where we come in and our role in our team is to really get our clients and advisors educated on sort of what to, like, how, how do we simplify and translate these inherently more complex instruments and, and asset classes in, into something we can put on one, you know, a one pager, like what, what yeah. is this? Why do I own it? When is it going to perform well? When might it perform poorly? What, what's the historical you know benefit? Where, where, what should my expectations be? Where are you taking it from in the portfolio? So I'll kind of answer all those questions in a very simple, um, non-jargony type of way. I think it's a really good way to, uh, you know, get people comfortable with some of these things that they might not otherwise uh, look to own. You touched on a few of the questions that, that in my experience, you know, we often got from advisors, particularly when you come to talk about alternatives and, you know, things like where did it fit, you know, the sizing, you know, how much is enough, how much is too much. Um, and do you fund them out of bonds or equities? And I guess in each case, it, it, you know, it depends on 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 the objective of the client and the specific uh, strategy. And w- what are your thoughts on the, on those uh, three issues? You know, um, sizing, funding from bonds or, or, or equities, and and you know, role in the portfolio. Yeah, and I, and I think too, like even liquidity is another feature where some yes. we have some clients that really place a high. Um, emphasis and kind of premium on having full daily liquidity in their portfolio. So that actually eliminates a couple of the alternative categories that we use, like private private credit and real assets. We can't, the, the way we we access those strategies is not through daily liquid vehicles. Um, and so for, you know, if, if a client really wants to be fully liquid, then it just means that we're, there's certain things that we're not going to be able to include in the portfolio. So we can't, we, we run a number of different sets of models that accommodate some of those preferences around liquidity and um, sizing of alternatives because, um, you know, it, it does introduce some, some questions there. Um, to your point on where to source it from and how to size it, I, I would say probably not. We, we, we typically take from both stocks and bonds. It might depend on which alternative you're talking about. But if you look at the collective, you know, it, it's it's sourced partially from both parts of the traditional portfolio. I would say in today's environment, it's more so coming from the bond sleeve. The majority is coming from from where traditional fixed income otherwise might be if it was a a kind of pure 60 40 type mix you know the, the sizing i think there's no perfect answer on what your alternatives mix should be it's really somewhere in between enough to matter and not too much that it's gonna cause you to you know abandon the portfolio at the worst possible time um because it, by, by the by the more alternatives and line items you add the more different you're gonna look than your peers and the more line items you have the more likely it is that in any given short-term period there's going to be one thing that sticks out as uh seeming like it's it's not holding up its end of the bargain and it's not adding to the portfolio so there's always the risk of oh i'm gonna get rid of this now because it, it's not working you know quote unquote not working so um so i think we need to be mindful of that as allocators and advisors that our clients aren't professional investors they're looking to learn from us but at the same time that we need to educate and provide you know reasonable expectations and so I think we need, you know, we, we might have a higher target that we want to get to on alts, but we also need to be mindful of the behavioral ramifications of those choices. So I think every every RAA firm is going to, f- you know, find the right sweet spot that works for them. But I think at the same time, too, at, if you're going to do like 3% in alternatives in your, in your balance portfolio, you, you might as well do zero. It's not going to. Yeah. you know, make a huge difference either way. Um, so if you're, if you're, if you're only looking to sort of check a box, then, then I think you're almost doing yourself and your clients a disservice. It, I would, it's either, either go zero or, or somewhere that's substantial enough where it's going to matter to the long-term uh, results of the portfolio. I'm conscious, obviously you have to explain all of this to your client who may not be, you know, I guess in most cases are not, you know, investment professionals. But at the same time, there's a lot of tools and techniques open to you in terms of how to construct portfolios and portfolio optimization, etc. Are, are they things that you find helpful or not? Or, you know, if, if you were to plug all your, you know, inputs, all your different uh, alternative investments alongside traditional investments with, with a set of, you know, return expectations and uh, volatilities and a variance variance matrix into an optimizer and see what it comes out with um would that be a portfolio that you could go to a client and say i'm happy to stand over this portfolio uh, or not i think it's helpful to to go through that exercise periodically just to, to sort of see what the output is but at the same time we we probably need to be you know thoughtful about imposing some degree of constraints and what we you know how, how much we're willing to go 
plus or minus uh, off of strategic targets to some of these areas. Because again, as we mentioned earlier, that, that you're, if the portfolio looks too quote unquote like weird, um, it, it just might be a really challenging thing to stick with. And so I think, you know, certainly we want to have the expected risk and return attributes of, of all the asset classes we allocate to. Um, we want them to be, you know, informative of how we make allocation decisions, but not to the degree that we're making humongous bets uh, in the portfolio either. So I think there's a, a delicate balance to be struck between, you know, making over and underweight decisions based on on some of those portfolio optimization um, exercises, but at the same time, you know, still still having a reasonable enough amount of of tracking error that that these these are portfolios that most investors can kind of hold through thick and thin. And to give us a sense, I mean, bringing it all together of of the typical, you know, obviously every client is different, every portfolio is different, but how much of it of 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 an average portfolio to the extent you can you can say average would be in non-traditional or alternative assets and strategies in, in your experience? I would say probably in like the the sort of fifteen to twenty percent okay. region is, is is tends to be the the average for us. Yeah, very good. Good stuff. Just shifting gears a little bit. So obviously, asset allocation and and asset selection is pretty important. And you know, of most of the research would say asset allocation is the primary driver of portfolio performance over time. And in a lot of cases, you can get your exposures via um, beta products, via ETFs, etc. But in other instances, you have to actively select managers. And you know, obviously, as an allocator, you know, I had a challenge for 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 the last number of years of grappling with uh, choosing between managers. What do you think about the challenge of manager selection? Is that a different skill to asset allocation, or the, are there particular things you have to be cognizant of? You know, in terms of behavioral biases as you approach the uh, manager selection decision yeah i think it's a manager selection is a hugely important um activity that, that we that we perform with our, our research team and our investment committee i think it'll it'll vary by asset class i think as you mentioned there's some asset classes where we just sort of want pure like beta exposure so we're not necessarily hiring an active you know stock picker for example for our, our u.s large cap exposure we just kind of want broad market exposure and we want it very cheaply and tax efficiently as we possibly can. And so when you're looking at a handful of ETFs that by and large kind of do the same thing, you know, there's not going to be as much variance there. And so it tends to make the decision-making process a bit easier because you kind of know what areas to focus on of uh, of cost or, you know, turnover, what have you. Um, you know, the, the, the degree to which we, um, you know, spend time on the manager selection side tends to be the, the asset classes where, you know, we, we lean a little bit more into to an active approach. Some of that by choice uh, in the sense of just like, you know, fixed income is a good example where plenty of parts of fixed income that might be, you know, worth taking a passive approach, but there's other parts, maybe it's credit focused sectors, maybe it's municipal bonds where um, there, there's been a little bit um, higher degree of, of persistence and uh, active outperformance uh, you know, based on those categories characteristics. And so we might prefer to to have an active manager there, but with with the active management comes a higher, you know, uh, degree of dispersion across you know your top and worst performers. And so, you know, that's where when when you, when you are sort of stepping out there and taking an active approach in a certain asset class, um, you know, the allocation decision might be right, but if you get the manager selection, you know, really really wrong, then that can you know almost eliminate any of the allocation benefits that you might have had. And so um, there's some asset classes that aren't really that you know indexable you can pretty much index anything and in, you know every corner of the stock and bond market that you might possibly want to there, there's not that luxury and uh, a number of alternative categories so but by by default you almost have to select an active approach um to, to access some of these areas and so i think it's really figuring out do you do you want something that's more systematic versus versus discretionary and is and in some areas, does it make sense to employ multi, you know, multiple managers as opposed to one where there is a high degree of dispersion in the category, and you want to make sure that you're not exposing yourself too much to any sort of idiosyncratic process risk? And managed futures is actually one area that we think actually does lend itself quite well to a a multi-manager vehicle or, or approach um, because you do get a, you know, from CTA to CTA, you do see a high degree of variability, um, a lot of different, you know. You know, the, 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a simplicity to trend following in concept, but in practice and in implementation, you know, every manager is going to have their own differences in implementation and 
um, the markets they trade in and their look back periods and turnover and all these sorts of things. And so that, you know, that can lead to very, very different outcomes depending on what their focus might be, you know, a short-term trend follower versus a more long-term focused one, uh, a more kind of macro focused manager versus a pure trend follower. You get a lot of, a lot of dispersion there. So I think, you know, if ultimately at the end of the day, you just want that sort of managed futures um, beta, if you will, uh, you, you might be better off in a multi-manager type approach for, for that access. So that's one example of a handful where it might make sense to, to either do the multi-manager yourself where you're, where you're allocating to a handful of individual funds or through one vehicle that you're, you're essentially outsourcing that manager selection uh, decision to, to a third party. And so, you know, either way can work. I think for, you know, the average advisor who, you know, let's say we'll, 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 use, we'll continue to use managed futures as an example. If that's only 5% of someone's portfolio, you probably don't want five individual managed futures line items in someone's <laughs> account. It, it's just going to create too much you know, implementation and operational headaches and behavioral risk. And so I think if you can get that same you know, outcome roughly in one, in one fund, you probably want to lean towards that, that type of approach in our opinion. So Interesting. And obviously you've got the manager selection decision. Uh, an equally difficult one is you know, the scenario after you've had a manager in place for a number of years and performance hasn't been quite what your expectations were. Do you have, you know, processes in place or how do you approach that to decide, okay, this particular uh, manager or strategy hasn't performed in line with expectations and we need to review and and, and, and deselect that, that, that manager? Is that something that goes through kind of a formal process and, very much quantitative um, kind of process or, you know, are, are, are there, is it more of a subjective assessment? Uh, it's both. We have, we have a, our, our investment committee has a, a quarterly review process we do for, for all the managers and funds that we use in our, our portfolios to, to really try to measure quantitatively first and foremost, like, is anything sticking out? Um, and we kind of use a traffic lights, you know, system of uh, green, yellow, red to, to identify like any yellow and reds that w- might need attention from us, but it's, you know those quantitative outputs aren't a they're they're not a the higher fire decision. It's more like hey, we might need to well, let's pay some attention to this and figure out what's driving uh, this fund or this manager showing up on the list. But then ultimately, it's a uh, a little bit more of a qualitative assessment, some conversations with the manager. Um, but we we want to be very patient. Like if we're going through all the upfront diligence to to get comfortable with someone's approach and process, and you know we we know that there's going to be variability in returns. That, that's the nature of any active approach. Um, so you have to understand going in, there's going to be a short-term period where you're going to look like you made a poor decision that, you know, we can't confuse outcome with process. And so I think it's just sort of re-underwriting things, being patient. Um, you know, we're, 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 we tend to be slow to make decisions because we want to kind of measure twice and cut once. And so um, and we're not interested in turning our portfolio over frequently in a given year. So I think you know, we, we give give managers enough leash to, to let them do their thing. Um, but if we feel something material has changed from a from a people or process standpoint, uh, or, or maybe our thesis has changed on, on an asset class, then yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we always retain the ability to make changes. But I think there's been too many studies shown that that you know institutions and other allocators are are, are not great at timing, you know, hiring and firing decisions. That they tend to be almost counterproductive in, in the sense that the opposite, you know, approach probably would have worked better. You, know, you typically don't see, see things added to a portfolio that are coming off of a period of abysmal performance. And, and similarly speaking, the, the managers that get fired, you know, it tends to be off periods of weakness. But then if you measure the performance after you fire them, like you, 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 you tend to see some mean reversion. So if, if, if something doesn't feel like it's broken, um, then there's probably not a, a high degree of urgency to make a change. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's that's really the challenge is, is separating the the randomness in in the return series, which is something that, that you know uh, people struggle with, and uh, you know you touch on outcome versus process there, and uh, you know if the process is is not broken, uh, you know you have to satisfy yourself that uh, returns or something something is is outside of statistical uh, expectations. Well, and I, I think another good example there it's not even just specific to like your traditional active approaches. Like yeah. even if you look into things like you know, index funds or, or kind of factor-based like equity strategies, a good example would be like the last decade for up until the last like year and a half, but like for value, value had kind of its worst stretch on record. But if you look at category level performance, the things that sort of look the best in the category 
are, are going to be your index funds or your factor strategies that really aren't getting a high degree of like that factor beta. And maybe they're a little bit more vanilla in their construction, more market cap weighted and more, you know, they might have value in the name, but they're not giving you a high degree of exposure to the value factor. So of course, when the value factor is extremely out of favor, those things are going to look better. That being said, the things that might look worse in that category when during a period of really historically bad value performance are probably the things that are, you know, giving you a more pure focused, like deep value type exposure. So they might look worse within their category over that stretch. But if you're if you're confident that value will reemerge, then you probably want to maintain that that holding because it's going to give you the most bang for your buck if and when things ultimately, you know, go the other direction. And so I think that's another it's not just a, a simple, you know, they're, they're, it's a little bit different to, to kind of analyze and diligence factor funds and, and index funds than it is your active manager. But I think there's also some parallels as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you say there, if you are confident, say that the value factor is, is going to return. And it's that point that that's the really challenging bit, you know, that level of confidence, because with all of these things, whether it's trend following, you know, experiencing a period of underperformance or the value factor, experience a period of underperformance, there will always be a narrative around why that's happening and, and why maybe something in the world has changed to explain that, that, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on growth versus value, but but there there has been a narrative put forward, you know, the world has changed. You have to be uh, more, more growth focused and equally there was the same narrative put forward as to why trend following uh, had stopped working. And I think this is a good segue into another section in your book where you're talking about you know, what it takes to, to, to kind of be a good allocator. And you, you mentioned a, a perspective from, from Michael Mabusen, who, who had, you know, that there was four, four edges in, in, in investing, you know, analytical, informational, technical, and behavioral. And, and your point was that, well, the analytical, informational, and, and technical are gradually being eroding over time as people, you know, get, get more sophisticated in their analysis and, you know, as data becomes more readily available. But it's the behavioral side where, where, where people, people can, um, and investors and allocators can differentiate themselves. Um, so how do you cultivate that behavioral edge as, a, as an allocator? Uh, it's not easy. I don't think anyone's, you know, we're, even professional investors and allocators are, are still human beings. And so even, even though they might be more aware of, you know, some of the common behavioral biases that, that, are, that affect investors, it doesn't mean we're, we're any you know, better at, at avoiding them. <laughs> we might think that we are, but at the end of the day, I think we're, we're all susceptible to them. I think, um, you know, temper, your, your temperament and behavior as an allocator and an, and, and an investor is going to be a, a big determinant of your long-term success. Um, and so I think, you know, like uh, according to, to Michael Mavison's framework there, I think that is the most important sort of uh, edge that there can be is behavioral. I think it's the one that you know, as long as human nature is what it is, the, those that have the behavioral, um, you know, uh, wherewithal are, are going to be the ones that that do the best. I think if you sort of take that framework and think about, well, what is what, what would an allocator look like? You know, that that has the highest odds of of, of building portfolios designed for long term outcomes and not just following the crowd. I think I came up with an acronym for it in the book, and I I, I call it Sharp. Uh, kind of fits with with Edge, a Sharp Edge. But you know, to me, uh, it, it's a it's a um, you know, it has to be sensible. You want you need to be humble. You need to be autonomous in your thinking. You need to be resolute, and you need to be persevering. And so, to me, those are the kind of five defining characteristics of if you, if you want to focus your attention on you know how to improve as an allocator, it's really trying to make sure that every way that you approach the the portfolio design and construction process is trying to you know just make sure you're being mindful of those five attributes and, and the decision making that you employ. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you have this you know, really comprehensive book about investing and alternative investments, and you get to the final chapter. And, uh, you know, what really came out to me was the importance of courage. Um, you know, so it's, it's this behavioral idea that um, if you want to be very successful and uh, if you want to do a good job as an allocator, one, you can't just follow the crowd, you know, as you say, better to... Uh, very often the, the view is better to, to, to fail conventionally than, than succeed unconventionally, but that 
that that will obviously lead to to pretty average results. So to um to to deliver for clients, it's it's about as you say, thinking more autonomously and uh, and and having the courage of your of your convictions. It's I guess that that that's great in theory. It can presumably sometimes lead to some difficult uh, conversations with clients. Yeah, and I, I think you know if if uh, if the hope of a reader is to open up the book and and that there's some like you know magical answer in there about here oh the allocator's edge is this asset class that's gonna you know be your your silver bullet and and you know uh, cure cure everything that ails your portfolio there there's unfortunately that it, you're gonna be disappointed but the, you know the real edge is gonna be ultimately it's not one asset class it's not a a mythical like pre, you know perfect portfolio that we know doesn't exist we think we can improve improve upon the traditional portfolios but ultimately at the end of the day what's gonna get us you know, to those successful outcomes is is that conviction, is that that courage to you know think and act differently than our peers. And I, I guess you know, if you think about the last number of years we've had in markets, and as as you say, um, you touched on some of the themes that 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 are starting to 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 show signs that might be about to change. You know, international stocks versus U.S. stocks, uh, value versus growth. You know, some of the alternatives starting to come back. If we were to to go back to say you know, December 2019, or, you know, maybe even uh, a number of months ago, and, and uh, the performance of the S&P 500 would have probably, you know, done much better, even maybe even in risk adjusted terms, than, than your very diversified portfolio, incorporating alternatives, incorporating these tilts. Um, and that's where I guess, you know, you can you can convince people at an intellectual level, okay, I can see the case for diversification. But when, you know, a concentrated portfolio of FANG stocks is massively outperforming, then I guess, uh, you know, you have to go back to first principles with clients and explain everything bit by bit as to why, why they are invested in all, all of these different strategies. And, you know, for advisors out there and people advising um, clients on, on being diversified, any, any help? Helpful tips about how to manage those conversations. It's not easy. I mean, my my friend Brian Portnoy is fond of saying diversification means always having to say you're sorry, um, and, and it really does because there, you know, by by the very act of diversifying, you're you're eliminating the potential of of being overexposed to the worst performing asset class, but you're also you know re, re, uh, limiting your ability to be exposed to the, the best performing asset class. The the challenge though is we can't know without the benefit of hindsight, what the best performing asset class is going to be over the next one year, three years, five years, 10 years. I think as, as human beings, we have very short memories and we had an incredible decade for US large cap stocks. And in hindsight, yes, of course, it would have made more sense to own more of them. Uh, <laughs> any, you know, it would 100% in hindsight would have been probably the right move, but we, we, we have no way of knowing that without you know the benefit of hindsight, and so I think the I think you just need to remind people that that's not always been the case. We only have to look a decade prior to the 2000s, where you had a negative 10-year period for the S&P 500. So it is not a a you know I think the challenge is that when the best performing thing is the index that people get reminded of or kind of thrown in their face every single day, it's the first thing you see on CNBC or in the financial media. Like everyone knows what the S&P 500 is, so I think that's made it harder. Had it been like emerging market stocks that's, that had had the same stretch of performance over the past 12 years, I don't think there would be any, you know, clients that are saying, oh, I want to put 100% of my portfolio in emerging markets. They would, they, they might want to say, hey, might, should I be owning more of this? But it, it's it's a little bit of a different dynamic. And it just so happens that the thing that's been the best place to be is, is what people are most familiar with and, 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 and kind of comfortable with. So I think that's what, what has made this kind of last sort of market environment um, so, so challenging for diversified allocators, but I think just kind of bring people back to other historical periods where, where that, you know, it, it wasn't such a pretty picture. And I think, you know, I think it's helpful to remind people because we get so caught up in recency bias that we extrapolate it to the future. And so we need to just examine other time periods where there has been a benefit to being diversified. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you still, you know, many of our clients, like their, their biggest holding is still U.S. stocks. It has been. Just because it's a it's a huge you know it's the biggest stock market in the world and a lot of our clients are tilted towards stocks so it's not like you've missed out on the returns it's just that we we you know yeah. we we we'd be doing our you a disservice if we were making such concentrated bets in our portfolio that we were overexposing you to the the potential downside because it can you know can and will manifest at some point 
Um, and, and that's not our job to, uh, to, to make those calls for you. Our job is to, to work as your fiduciary and try to do everything we can to improve the odds of your long-term success. I think you said you, you started your career in 2008 um, in, in, in your dad's firm. I mean, was that, you know, that experience of being in the markets and, and that being your first year in the markets, do you think that has had a big impact on your mindset in terms of the need for diversification? And if somebody had started, you know, maybe a little later that they mightn't have had that mindset? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, um, I was still very, you know, green and, and you know, kind of learning the, the, the ropes of the business. So, um, you know, it was all, you know, pretty scary at the time because I didn't really know what was happening. Like, no, nobody really knew, but like for, for not really having that sort of financial, you know, acumen that I, I have today, it was a little, you know, more just like kind of eye-opening and it was certainly, you know, learning, you know, it was a great learning experience if nothing else. Um, fortunately I didn't have a lot of actual dollars at, at risk at that point, just cause I didn't have like two nickels to rub together at that point. So, um, you know, that, it, you know, despite my 401k balance being down, you know, by, by half it, from a dollar standpoint, it wasn't as painful, but I, I think that has been informative to my law, my thinking about diversification and that I saw the impact that it had on, on the behavior and kind of worst fears of our clients. And then as, as much as our, our advisory team did a fantastic job throughout that crisis period to keep people in their seats and keep them focused on the long term and, you know, get them to the other side of it, you know, knowing that this too shall pass, there, there's always going to be some outliers. And, and you, you did see some people make some really sort of irreversible decisions, those, those folks that kind of tap out at the, you know, the absolute worst time, like right near the bottom. And then they, they're, they're going to be scared from getting back in for years. And so when you, you know, those are sort of irreversible financial decisions. And that's what really struck me as, as the, why there is such a need for diversification and for balance in a portfolio, because you can have these really extreme environments that, that, you know, bring out our worst, you know, tendencies and, 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 uh, you know, decision-making abilities. And that the last thing we want to do is see all someone's hard work, you know, throughout their life and their career that's meant to support their retirement and all their other financial goals, goals if, if they're going to fall short of that because, you know, they were too overexposed to one asset class and uh, couldn't hang on to the portfolio. Then I think, you know, it just really kind of reminded me that, that risk management is such a, a key input to what we should be doing for clients. You still want to have that long-term appreciation and growth of a portfolio, but you need to manage risk as well. Good stuff. Before we wrap up, it'd be great to get some uh, perspective for you for would-be asset allocators, for people starting off, or for people who want to get better at asset allocation and, and alternatives. Any advice you have to offer in terms of things to read, things to do, any any books or people to follow that you think uh, would be very helpful for somebody looking to looking to develop their expertise in asset allocation? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the the book that's been most um useful to me and that I go back to from time and time again has it's a pretty thick and dense book but it really was eye-opening for me in many ways it's a book called expected returns uh by by a gentleman named Auntie Ilmanen uh, who's now at AQR um and I, to me that that's been the most um influential book in, in terms of my thinking about portfolio construction and asset allocation and really was kind of the aha moment for me in a lot of ways when it comes to uh, diversifying outside of traditional portfolios. Um, outside of that, I would not, not to give my book a, sh a shameless plug, but I, I will make a note that, you know, because of the length of the book, there's only so deep I can go into some of these areas, but I understood that a lot of readers might want to go deeper themselves and kind of go down the rabbit hole on, on, on one or more of the different topics covered in the book. So I included an appendix at the end of the book that I, that I really wanted to be kind of a helpful guide to, okay, if you want to learn more about private equity or insurance link securities or, you know, real estate, every topic covered in the book has a, a uh, section in the appendix where I list any books, white papers, articles, or podcast episodes that I've found it, uh, to be helpful in learning more about these categories. So it's a pretty, pretty long, it's like a you know, three, four page appendix, but there's a lot of really uh, good pieces of content in there that can kind of help you go even deeper than, than I was able to in the book. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Phil. Uh, it's been a really informative and enlightening conversation. I hope, uh, I hope it's been fun for you too. Always fun to chat with you, Alan. Great. Well, listen, good talk to you and best of luck for, for, for the rest of the month and year. So with that, I'll hand it back to Niels. 
Thanks so much, Alan and Phil, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed learning about Phil's take on what it means to be a good allocator and his SHARP acronym and what that stands for. It was also great to hear about the courage it takes to be a diversified investor when the investment that people follow the most is going through a rampant bull market like we've seen in the US stocks. Make sure you go and follow Phil's and Alan's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to building a well-diversified portfolio, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.